So Michelle. Yes, Tyler. Did you hear about the brand that hired a bad PR company? No, I didn't. Exactly. Welcome to the Lionshare Podcast for marketing leaders by marketing leaders. Brought to you by Fidelitas Development. And welcome to episode 18 of the Lionshare Marketing Podcast. I'm Tyler Sickmeyer, one half of your uh, co-host team, joined to us by our newest member of the Lionshare Marketing Podcast, Michelle Stansbury. Michelle, welcome. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Had to break you in, honestly, there. A little joke to start. So. I, I, dad humor is honestly why I came here. So Perfect. And, and PR is actually your background. And speaking of PR, Michelle, what's in the news? News team, assemble! Well, there's a lot happening in the news, and really a lot of it has to do with social media. LinkedIn, for example, just launched some native video to increase engagement in LinkedIn through video. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, opportunity here for B2B marketers, especially that lean on the LinkedIn platform. With native video, some marketers are seeing that it's as much as 20 times more effective than just a traditional post. So one of the other interesting things that I think we'll see out of this is a separation of the varsity from the junior varsity when it comes to influencers. You know, it's one thing to share articles and to write a well-calculated post. It's another thing to be able to speak coherently about your sphere of influence. And so it'll be interesting to watch who takes advantage of this new platform and who passes on it because it just may not be their strength. But definite opportunity for a lot of B2B marketers and B2C marketers, for that matter, when it comes to increasing brand awareness or investor relations, there's a lot of different uses for video down the line. Absolutely. What we've seen over the past decade is that the media landscape is changing significantly. I mean, we used to have just a few big TV stations, a few big newspapers, a few big magazines that controlled content. And now it's really shifting so that people are becoming their own media broadcasters. They're creating great content. They're sharing it. They're finding ways to engage their current audience and get new audience. And video is a great way to do that because you get, to, you get to present your brand. You get to present yourself. That's exactly right, Michelle. And, you know, it's interesting. They haven't announced plans how they're going to monetize this yet or if there's going to be space for P-roll ads or anything like that yet. And they're still rolling it out. I'm not sure if every member of LinkedIn has it to date. I'm sure by the time many of our podcast listeners scope out this episode, they will have it available. And you can actually check that out in your LinkedIn app. Assuming you've updated it to the latest version, you'll notice a little camera icon by the box at the top of your screen where you can normally just uh, write a post or an update. So the app is functional and available. And for at least some users, we'll see if it's uh, rolled out to everybody. But as far as monetization goes for brands, to me, I think at the start, it's going to be about thought leadership and capitalizing on the audience that you've already built. I do think there's an opportunity, though, for brands that leverage the platform properly to actually run LinkedIn ads and pay to drive more traffic back to these native videos. Absolutely. And I think the most important things to understand is that you want to be authentic with these videos. You want to portray who you are, that you're trustworthy, that you're likable, that you know what you're talking about, but you also want to be professional. And so I'd say if you have anyone that you're working with for PR, talk to them, talk to them about some media coaching, because it's even more important when you're doing it with your smartphone than when you have a professional news crew to look and sound professional. Make sure your lighting is good, make sure your phone quality is good, invest in a few things like a tripod for your phone so you can get less of a, a Blair Witch Project look to your video and, <laughs> and more of a semi-professional quality video that you're putting up there. 
Yeah, that's great. And I think you hit on a great point, right? You don't have to break the bank to do something that looks professional and comes off clean. You know, minimal video editing skills are ideal. If you have an agency partner, I'm sure they can do that for you at little to no charge. You're only looking at an hour or two of work there. But for marketing leaders, I think it's important to come off professional, but at the same time, don't sink too much of your budget into this yet. LinkedIn hasn't put any real tracking mechanisms behind this yet as far as being able to quantify what these videos are going to be driving as far as results and ROI go. So in terms of that, I would treat this as more of an experiment, one that's likely to be very profitable in the long run, but an experiment nonetheless. So keep it low budget. Camera phones are fine. You know, if you have something like, you know, one of the later versions of an iPhone or Android phone with a great camera on it, that's more than sufficient. You need to do a little bit of cleanup in post-production. I'm sure that's fine too, but if you're spending more than an hour or two hours on any of these live videos, many of which won't be more than 30 seconds, or I think the max length that LinkedIn is allowing is 10 minutes. So I, I mean, that said, I don't see any need to put more than a couple hours into a video for most, especially while we're in the testing phase. Now down the line, maybe you do a series of drip videos, or maybe you get a little bit clever with all the actions that you put in with clickable links in, in post-production. If you really want to start investing into that level, if you can track it and it's worth your time to do so, great. But regardless, I do think it's a great tool for all marketing leaders to test out. And as with all social media, it's hard to get bad content back once it's out there. So uh, you shouldn't be investing too much energy or money into these LinkedIn videos. Don't put out bad content either because that can come back and haunt you. So get another set of eyes on it. Just have a, a colleague or a friend look at it before you put it out and make sure it's something that you're going to feel good if it stays out there for a long time. That's awesome. And Michelle, we have an awesome guest with us today on episode 18, uh, Ashok Kamal, one of the leaders at Tech Coast Angels out here in San Diego, which is a great group of investors uh, involved in a lot of up and coming brands and projects out here in Southern California. And uh, really looking forward to uh, sharing the insights that Ashok shared in our interview with our listeners. So without further ado, let's get to our interview with Ashok. All right, everybody. I'm here with Ashok Kamal from Tech Coast Angels. He's the executive director there. He's a serial entrepreneur as well and also an angel investor. Ashok, it's great to have you on the Lion Share Marketing Podcast. Hey, uh, Travis. Good to be. No, I'm just kidding. So Tyler and I were joking <laughs> here, as we were getting ready about the you know butchering of names, which you can imagine mine uh, being Ashok Kamal. I've heard it all. And surprisingly, although he has a unique and cool last name, Sickmeyer, and I figured, you know, Sickmeister and Sickmaster would be common. Errors. Those are just my DJ names. Those are his DJ names. So uh, if you want to piss him off, call him Travis, which, uh, you know, <laughs> I guess is a somewhat easy mistake to make. Yeah, you know how it goes. So that's great. And we'll have to put a link to my club hits in the show notes from my right. uh, DJ Sickmaster days. The doppelganger. <laughs> Oh, that's great. So Shok, tell us, for those that don't know or possibly don't live in the Southern California region, what is Tech Coast Angels? So Tech Coast Angels is uh, one of the leading angel investor networks in the country. And in fact, we're the most active early stage investor group in Southern California as a whole. In San Diego, we're uh, essentially a group of about 120 accredited investors that focus on early stage innovation companies. So we really have two buckets that we invest in primarily. Uh, one is life science companies, tends to be medical devices, uh, pharma, therapeutics, and then what we call high tech, which is sort of everything else. So clean tech, material science, of course, software, both consumer and business. 
Uh, you know, but basically it's a group of people that want to help early stage entrepreneurs build their companies from the ground up. So our membership is a combination of exited entrepreneurs that have built companies themselves and sold them who understand, you know, what it's like to run a startup all the way up through retired executives from companies like Qualcomm and Illumina and other, you know, leading corporations in San Diego, people that have, uh, you know, worked in industry and have connections and, you know, want to both provide capital and mentorship to the young companies. And we focus on San Diego specifically, but we do invest in companies not only throughout Southern California, but from all across the nation by working with other angel and early stage investors, which we call syndications. So, you know, bottom line is we're, you know, a very active group of early stage investors and we're looking for the next great innovation companies to be part of our portfolio. Okay, that's great. And so when you talk about your portfolio, what types of startups and innovation companies are you looking for? Well, I can talk about, for example, say the last uh, handful of deals that we did over the summer. In any given year, typically TCA San Diego will do 15 or so deals. So on average, about one a month. And on average, we'll invest at least $5 million in total you know, in those, let's call it 15 deals. The last few, you know, kind of, I think, illustrate the diversity within, you know, sort of the innovation economy that we focus on. I'm on the life science side. It's a company called Dodo Omnidata, which I find extremely cool. Uh, it's basically using synthetic DNA to store data. So in this era of big data, which is obviously exponentially growing, we are running out of space to put our ones and zeros. So DNA, it turns out, is one of the best storage mechanisms, probably the best that has ever been invented by Mother Nature. And uh, Dodo uses DNA in a lab to be able to essentially upload and download data, which provides much, much more capacity. They have you know, kind of a factoid where in a pool of DNA the size of your pinky fingernail, you could store an entire library. Obviously, that's not possible with other storage mechanisms. So that's an example of the kind of frontier innovation that we're funding, you know, it'll be years before a company like Dodo gets to market because the economics of that process is still, you know, sort of very early on. It's laboratory only, but of course there's a path to commercialization and early stage investors like Tech Coast Angels are making that bet that we can help the company get there and that the company will get there. So that's one example, you know, of a, what we would consider a life science company on the high tech side. For example, we just funded a company called Group Solver, which is essentially an AI-powered uh, survey monkey. So it's for businesses that want to get intelligence on their customer base. They have customers like Jack in the Box, for example. And instead of just providing a static survey, Group Solver will use machine learning to you know, ask intelligent questions of the customers so companies can get insights into you know, what the trends are that they're looking for. So you know, that's just two examples on you know, maybe both ends of the spectrum, you know, we do hardware deals. The biggest company that we funded this year, the biggest deal in terms of size called Echo Labs, another very cool local company, you know, based in Mission Valley area. It's a next generation microscope. So if Apple made a microscope, it would look like the Echo Labs microscope. It, you know, basically can do research that has never been possible before in any single microscope. And we led uh, $9 million in financing for that company through its Series A. And again, these are all nice. local companies. So, you know, there's a pretty wide breadth of what we invest in, but the common traits are some kind of unique intellectual property, some sort of traction in the marketplace, and of course, a great management team. That's great. And, and uh, when it comes to your startups, how are they going about, for the ones that are to market, how are they going about customer acquisition? 
Yeah, so I think this is always kind of one of the biggest challenges for startups is how do you cross that chasm? You know, and it's something that's been studied, you know, how do you get to those early adopters, you know, if you will. And it's really important because, you know, one of the changes in the early stage capital markets that, you know, we've witnessed over the last couple of years is the bar for sort of proof of concept and traction as a startup for you to get professional investment dollars. That bar has gone way up. So there's been this sort of phenomenon of spiraling credentialism. So that means that as a startup, no matter what, you need to go and prove that there's demand for your product or service through your own customer development process. The lean startup methodology, I think, is a good um, you know, kind of framework for being able to demonstrate that traction, you know, no matter what your business is, you know, whether you're doing surveys or whether you're getting actual paid customers to demonstrate that there's you know, effective demand for your product or service is really the most important marketing task that you have. And in the case of, say, for example, you know, that uh, I just referenced, that demonstration, that traction, you know, ranges everywhere from paid customers, you know, in the case of Group Solver, like I said, they have, you know, a big name, you know, kind of uh, clients, you know, through getting memorandums of understanding, for example, with, you know, other research laboratories, if, you know, you're in that particular business or getting um, letters of intent, you know, for example, if you're doing business software and, you know, maybe you don't have the product fully developed yet, but you have some indication, you know, from your customers that they're interested in buying if you can deliver on, you know, a solution. That's great. And when you talk about, again, they've got to, of course, prove demand before you can justify an investment. How do you go about being a startup that comes in with a fully fleshed out marketing plan? Or do you prefer them to come in a little bit more open-ended and then work with them to develop that? I mean, I think, you know, great marketing plans are flexible. So I think it does show a level of discipline and it's kind of a proxy for, you know, how the startup's thinking to see a strong go-to-market strategy. You know, nothing trumps traction. So, you know, you could have the glossiest, you know, marketing plan in the world produced by Stanford MBAs. But if at the end of the day, you know, you don't have any real customer feedback, I mean, one testimonial from a customer is more valuable than a hundred page marketing plan with, you know, all the P's included in it. But having said that, I think it does indicate, you know, sort of sophistication and just the the kind of thinking that uh, a startup's engaging in when you see a strong go-to-market strategy that shows a path forward. And we recognize, just like financial statements, I mean, you know, we get, you know, five-year financials from companies that, you know, haven't sold anything yet, you know, so it's totally speculative. And that's understood, you know, by the investors. And it's understood that in the history of early stage investing, there's been probably zero times when the five-year financials were, were accurate, you know, anywhere in the world. But that doesn't mean that they don't show kind of the potential, you know, for uh, the company and that they don't give you an idea of how the company's thinking. You don't want them to come in with absurd, you know, kind of financial projections. Same thing with marketing. You know, we want to see that there's a logical sort of well thought out go to market strategy, which then gives us the confidence that regardless of environmental, internal or external changes that are inevitable to happen at this stage, the company will, you know, kind of be responsive and, um, you know, will make those shifts with the marketplace to adjust their marketing plan accordingly. Got it. And where have you seen some of your uh, startups win when it comes to marketing and getting the brand and the product to market? So I'm always a big fan of scratching your own itch or, you know, eating your own dog food. So I think, you know, again, when you look at sort of the management teams, you know, because you don't have a lot of data, right? At the early stage when somebody's, you know, just getting off the ground, it's not like, you know, there's 10 years of, you know, sales history that you can draw upon, right? So a lot of it is speculation. 
when you have founders that come from the industries that they're targeting. So I mentioned Echo Labs with Eugene Cho, who's the CEO, founder of Echo Labs. He was the top microscope salesperson for Nikon before he started Echo Labs. So he obviously knows the market. You know, he had relationships. And you can imagine as a top salesperson, he was getting a lot of good customer feedback on what the pain points were in the market, which then gave him the idea, you know, to start Echo Labs and create an innovative product. So, you know, I think that's, you know, probably the most reliable way for founders to, you know, be able to come up with ideas that ultimately are going to resonate in the marketplace. If they look at the problems that they're encountering right now, whether they're running a surf shop or CRMs for Salesforce, you're going to get insights from the marketplace, from, you know, your partners uh, that can help drive your own ideas. And I think ultimately um, that tends to be one of the best indicators of success, seeing not only that product market fit, but that founder product fit. You know, you know the product and the market in and out as a founder. So you're passionate about it and you understand what the pain points are. That's great. And so to flip that question on its head, Ashok, what about uh, any marketing misses you've seen that have really hurt a startup? Doesn't have to necessarily be one of yours. I know you probably wouldn't want to throw any of your partners under the bus, but just anything at large you've seen there, it's kind of like, you, you know, that would have been better if they could have avoided it. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll throw myself under the bus. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I roll around that thing, all, you know, through my 15 years of career as an entrepreneur, you know, many a time. Absolutely. I think, you know, the most common mistake you'll see is a solution that's chasing a problem. So again, when you talk about starting a company, you have to address a pain point and the pain point needs to be acute, right? So it can't just be like, a mosquito bite, like the pain needs to be like a sledgehammer to the head of the customer because there are always competitive solutions that are out there. The probably uh, stupidest thing an entrepreneur can say is we have no competition. It doesn't matter what you're doing. There is competition. Whatever, you know, you're trying to deliver for the customer, they're getting it from somebody else. It may not be as good as, you know, what you're proposing. They're getting it from elsewhere and it's very hard to change the status quo. So uh, the biggest issue, the biggest, you know, mistake that entrepreneurs make is coming up with a solution that's just not, say, 10x better, like I mentioned Dodo. I mean, that's a beyond 10x delta in terms of the efficiency of storage, if they can get that to market versus, you know, the current, you know, sort of solutions that are out there. So, you know, I, I think making sure that the pain is really acute, that it's, you know, blood at the neck, not blood, you know, kind of on the fingertip, you know, that's when you'll do something, not just that you want to do, which is a great starting point, but also that the marketplace wants from you. And in my personal career, you know, I've made this mistake multiple times. I'd say one of the more recent was starting a company called Civi Academy. It's an online education platform for entrepreneurs. So my partner and I, who he's a successful entrepreneur himself, you know, had a big exit to Adobe. And we got together and, you know, basically started a company based on what our passions were, which were educating entrepreneurs. So we created this platform. It's you know still around today to basically provide MBA to entrepreneurs. So we curated all of these videos and we created quiz questions and then gamified it. So if you answered questions correctly, you could get points that you could redeem for rewards, like say discounts on getting a logo from 99designs or what have you. The problem is we found that entrepreneurs don't want to take the time to watch these videos and even with the incentives and you know the way we tried to make it fun and make the user experience engaging at the end of the day they just want money they just want to start their company they didn't want to take the time to go and educate themselves for better or for worse you know so i would argue that it would benefit every especially first or second time entrepreneur to have gone through our curriculum it doesn't mean that they actually were going to do it so we found that 
just not enough people were going to pay for it. This was a few years ago, so simultaneously, a lot of free content started popping up on the internet, you know, from mm. Kauffman Foundation and other groups. So then, you know, then you have these other changes in the competitive landscape. So we ended up basically just making it free ourselves as a public service. But our incorrect assumption was that entrepreneurs were willing to pay for education at the early stage when in fact they tend to just, you know, be uh, restless and want to go straight to market. And, you know, most companies fail and that's probably one of the reasons why, but that doesn't mean you can change, you know, that behavior. Yeah, Shook, I think you're right. There's a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, that just want to skip right to the finish line. They don't really embrace the path or the strategy that it's going to take to get there. We see that, especially on the marketing side, you know, they'll come in and say, okay, well, great. So you can do X, Y, and Z, and you'll have a Facebook page up and a website up and that's it. And then we'll have sales, right? It's like, well, maybe. (laughs) Why don't we talk about a strategy first and about engaging your target audience? So I think a lot of times there's just a race to check the boxes and it's like they want to know that they have the information they need, but they also don't want to pay for it or actually take the time to absorb it or learn it themselves, which is problematic. Agreed. I think it's important to ask why more than what. You know, so ask why five times on every single question before you get to the what, you know, the Facebook page or the website that you're building or the app, you know, continue to ask why, 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 and that will help drive a what that might actually turn into a viable company. That's a great point. Great insight there for our uh, listeners taking this in, Ashok. And, And so when it comes to constructing marketing plans and budgets for businesses that often aren't generating revenue, or even if they are, they're often not cash flow positive yet. Do you have any ground rules when it comes to that or any, any best practices there? Yeah, focus on unit economics. You know, so, um, you know, at scale, obviously, the numbers are going to change. But, you know, let's say you're trying to reach a customer to buy your widget on an e-commerce platform, for example. You can still, you know, get an estimate of what your cost of customer acquisition is going to be. You can experiment with different distribution channels, you know, whether it's paid search or earned media, doing physical events, for example, you want to get an idea of how much it costs you to get a customer and what the value, the LTV, the lifetime value of that customer is. If you can actually provide credible sort of data, you know, that's derived from running experiments, not just, you know, kind of hypothetical exercises in your head, but working with, say, a company like Fidelitas, if you can provide, you know, kind of evidence that here's what it costs for you to get a customer and here's what you're going to generate revenue. That's, you know, something that investors can take to the bank because then we can make the leap in our heads of, okay, five bucks per customer, $15 lifetime value. Well, if we put a thousand dollars into the company, then, you know, here's what the margins are that, you know, the company is going to experience. So focus on unit economics, you know, at the beginning, as opposed to scale. That's great insight there. And by the way, thanks for the plug. Always appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Makes up for calling me Travis earlier. (laughs) Well, I know you sell a lot of widgets. By the way, I got to shout you out for that Arctic Freeze account. That's good stuff, man. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And uh, so when you start working with a startup, Ashok, how closely do you examine their brand and pay attention to brand development along the way? Well, for the stage of startups that we're working with, which tend to be kind of somewhere from, you know, seed to series A, you know, the brand is probably not its primary asset, um, especially when you're talking about a lot of B2B, you know, companies, sure. uh, that research-based companies that, you know, the consumer may never even know about, even through, you know, a billion dollar exit, you know, the average person may never, you know, heard of these, unlike, for example, an ice cream brand. So I would say brand is not, you know, our primary consideration. What we're really looking at are things like intellectual property. So, you know, what's the secret sauce? 
that the company has. That may be a driver of its brand eventually, but you know, for us really, what are the underlying assets, which are gonna be some combination of people, you know, that's absolutely at the forefront, and then sort of the technology you know, that the company has. Those things will drive the brand, but I'd say that's sort of our starting point um, for making investment analyses. And, and a lot of that's just, again, because the companies are not mature enough to you know, really have established a strong brand. Having said that, I think the positioning of a company at every stage, you know, kind of what's the DNA, if you will, kind of the values, you know, kind of the core of the company. That's an important thing, you know, you want to look at no matter what stage the company's at. And it's an indicator of the type of company that it will become, not the company it is today. Absolutely. And you hit on a key point there, especially for uh, a lot of our startups that are listening in today. When it comes to building a brand, it often starts with the founders. You know, you are the brand, especially I'd say right. if you have, especially for companies with 25 employees or less, the founders and leadership are the brand. So it's, it's so important for them to make sure that they're carrying themselves appropriately and monitoring their own personal social channels and all of that, because I'm sure that's come into play too. Have you ever, uh, have you ever seen a deal fall apart because during due diligence, uh, you found out a founder was posting some questionable content or some other uh, unsavory details came to light? Yeah, I mean, we've had plenty of deals fall apart during that due diligence process. So to give you know the listeners an idea of how kind of the sequence works for TCA, which is a common question, basically every month we run a fundraising cycle. So companies go to techcoastangels.com. There's an online application. They fill it out. It's basically submitting your deck and your executive summary. And then a team of domain experts look at all the applications at the end of the month, depending on you know sort of what category they are. We invite some of the companies, maybe one out of every 10, to present to, again, a, a SWAT team of experts in that industry. And then we make decisions from there on what a path forward would be. The path forward may be that there's not a fit for Techlist Angels. And in such cases, I always try and refer the company to maybe a different, more appropriate investor that focuses on that space or an incubator or some other resource, you know, that can help them continue, you know, their growth. If we find that there is a fit, then we go into a due diligence process where we start to look under the hood and it often gets hairy. And some of it's because of information, let's say, that was left out of the presentation about it could be the management, it could be the technology, you know, maybe the licenses that the companies got from a university have holes as big as Swiss cheese in them. So basically, let's say they really don't have, you know, kind of anything that they can, you know, um, no, no proprietary intellectual property, right? I've never had a case yet, you know, either with Techos Angels or elsewhere where, for example, you know, um, like the GoDaddy case, you know, where the CEO is like shooting rhinos, you know, kind of in, in Africa and, you know, it kind of created that scandal or so many other recent, you know, CEO scandals that we've heard about. I've never seen something like that happen, but there's been other like bugs under the stones when you start flipping them over. Like say, for example, um, the CEO has all this personal debt, you know, or the CEO is not full-time on the company because they're a professor and they're still trying to do research. So things that they don't share initially that come out in the due diligence process, usually they happen through us you know, doing reference checks through us looking at key company documents. I can't say yet that, you know, I stumbled upon a Facebook post that set off alarm bells, but it is going to happen for sure. Like, we, you know, we just live in this world of transparency, you know, right now that I have no doubt in my mind, you know, some deals are going to get killed because of a Snapchat, you know, a, a snap. <laughs> oh, and God bless technology because a lot of that stuff really comes down to a character thing. And if they're going to falter digitally, out in the open, they would falter privately as well. So probably save you a lot of money when you can flesh that out ahead of time. Absolutely. That's a good point. I mean, you know, of course, we don't engage in deal processes with the intention to kill a deal. 
Otherwise, we'd be wasting our time, which is significant, and the entrepreneurs. But more than half the deals that we go into diligence with do get stopped because of, you know, generally reasonable, you know, sort of reservations. But that's just the reality, you know, of the business. And, you know, it's not just Tech Coast Angels. Venture capitalists do maybe one out of every 1,000 deals that they see. So we're in a business of saying no at Tech Coast Angels, uh, you know, and all early stage investors. I think the way that you say no, you know, is really important. You want to say it fast and you want to give, you know, help companies that deserve it find resources for them to continue their you know, progress. Yeah, great insight there, Shauk. And uh, by the way, uh, when it comes to the investment side of it, I know obviously you're an angel yourself. What do you want to see more of when it comes to startups and their marketing strategies? So in terms of my own personal portfolio, you know, going back to values, I try and invest along my personal professional values, which you know, my personal professional values, I try and synergize and harmonize as much as possible throughout my career, whether it was, you know, my own startups, whether it was companies that I worked for, or now companies that I invested. So I'm always interested in finding companies that I'm passionate about in terms of the, you know, how they're positively impacting the world. You know, Outsight's an example, you know, one of my first angel investments, it's a a co-living and co-working company in beautiful places. So it taps into this sort of digital nomad um, universe. I'm sure a lot of your, your listeners are digital nomads, people that, you know, are freelance developers, designers, entrepreneurs, you know, et cetera. And what Outside does is we build these co-living facilities throughout the world now. So we've got about 15 in places ranging from Costa Rica and Puerto Rico to Venice Beach and San Diego. And digital nomads can travel the world, staying in our places where we build really great offices on the beach, you know, in the mountains, on the lake, and you connect with a community of like-minded people that's both inspiring and entertaining. That's, you know, I think a changing lifestyle for largely the millennial workforce where, you know, we're solving a problem that people don't want to just be stuck in one place and one job anymore. They want to travel the world, but they also, you know, want to be productive at the same time. So for me, that's just something in terms of a value in, you know, this collaborative, you know, economy that's important. And that's how I make my investment decisions. That's great. And by the way, what a great concept, by the way, we'll put a link in the show notes if our listeners want to check that out called outsite.co, right? Right. Yeah. So it's like outsite, like S-I-T-E. O-U-T-S-I-T-E dot co. We have the dot com too, but we started with the dot co and we got a little bigger, raised some money and we got the dot com too. So either one works. That's great. But what a great idea if you know, all of our listeners out there, if you're a marketing leader in a larger company, you can maybe talk your uh, boss into letting you work remote from overseas for a little bit. What a great setup. And we do do those arrangements with, so individuals come, you know, we'll have at any given time, let's say 15 people. Uh, we have two properties in Venice, one in San Diego, a couple in Santa Cruz and kind of up and down the California coast, for example. But we also work with companies where say a remote dev team from LinkedIn is an example. will come and stay at our properties for say a week and, you know, work on a scrum and on a particular project. And, you know, they always enjoy that as well. It's a great perk you know, for employees, even if they're not a full-time digital nomad, they get to get a slice of the digital nomad good life. Oh, that's spot on. And so now when it comes to marketing TCA and even outside as well, what are you doing to market your own brands? So the interesting thing with a group like TCA is it tends to be very internal looking, you know, so a lot of the marketing quote unquote has been sort of inbound press articles, you know, about deals that we're doing or just um, events, you know, that we host like Meet the Angels where, you know, we have panels of TCA members that talk about our process and what we look for, you know, in 
entrepreneurs to invest in. Uh, but I think overall, you know, because you asked about brand, you know, a few times, we do have a brand at Tech Coast Angels, and it hasn't been the best brand, you know, for the last few years. And that's something that I experienced when I moved to San Diego from New York City, where, you know, I, I come from. And I, you know, kind of was trying to figure out the lay of the startup landscape in San Diego. Obviously, it's growing rapidly, but it's still, you know, young compared to these startup economies like San Francisco and New York and Boston that I'm you know, more familiar with. So I think the reputation that, you know, I heard for Tech Coast Angels was this, this sort of, you know, social club, you know, of, of checked out retirees that aren't in tune with, you know, today's cutting edge startup landscape. And, you know, I'm not sure whether that's fair or not, because, you know, that's sort of what I heard coming in. But regardless, I think the fact of the matter is right now, if you look at the results, you know, for TCA, um, we are very active. Again, PitchBook, which is, you know, sort of a research group in our industry, has determined TCA is the most active early stage investor in Southern California. Now, Southern California is a major startup economy, and TCA is the most active early stage investor. So regardless of what you heard, TCA is open for business. And I think that's largely because the demographics of the TCA membership have been changing a lot, you know, in just say, for example, the time that I've been with TCA, which is only about a year, but even dating back probably a year or so before that, where, you know, you have a much greater diversity, you know, kind of, of membership in terms of gender, in terms of, you know, um, age, in terms of people's background, and, and just in terms of commitment level, you know, so regardless of your gender, age, background, if you're committed to working with companies and investing in companies as a serious, you know, pursuit, it's not just something you're doing, you know, for fun. And I think more of our membership fits that, you know, kind of characterization now. I think that's, you know, the kind of organization we want to be. You know, our goal is to make TCA clearly the best place for the best companies to raise a million dollars, period. That's awesome. Uh, awesome, Ashok. And uh, I, I just I want to be respectful of your time. So many great uh, little pieces of insight and nuggets here for our audience to take away. But if you had to give our, our marketing leaders one thing to take away from this conversation today, what would that be? Traction trumps all. You know, so again, as a you know, early stage startup or marketer, and really as a founder, you're a marketer. I mean, what else is there? You know, Peter Drucker said that you know, business is about marketing and innovation. Everything else is just details. You know, when you're a founder, you, know, you are first and foremost a marketer. You have multiple stakeholder groups, right? You have the employees that you're trying to recruit, often for no pay. Uh, you have the customers, most importantly, that you're trying to attract. And then you may have investors you know, that you're trying to raise money from. So you have this you know, kind of a multidimensional stakeholder group. Um, and at the end of the day, you have to prove you know, traction to be able to generate credibility with any of those groups. So you know, it all comes back to sort of that founder product fit, that is there real pain in the marketplace and how can you demonstrate it? If you do that, the good news is you will create interest demand from all of your stakeholder groups simultaneously. Yeah, excellent, excellent, great insight. And Ashok, if someone wants to connect with you or with TCA, where can people find you? So TCA's website is techcoastangels.com. That's where our application is for entrepreneurs. It's also where our application is for members. So if you are an accredited investor, you can apply to join the TCA network on our website. In terms of me personally, I try to be pretty responsive on the social channels. I try not to post anything too offensive. Uh, I, don't, I don't want uh, Tyler hanging me, uh, you know, kind of with concerns. So I'm on Twitter, AK underscore launch leader is my Twitter handle and on LinkedIn. You know, with this weird, hard to pronounce name that I have, Ashok Kamal, if you plug it into the LinkedIn search, you're going to find I'm, I'm the only guy that comes up, at least the only guy in this hemisphere. So <laughs> feel, free to, 
connect with me there and um, you know, pretty responsive on email as well. Happy to, you know, uh, connect with other folks in San Diego and, you know, throughout. That's great. Ashok, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a great episode and great interview having you on the Lionshare Marketing Podcast and look forward to talking with you again soon. Sounds great, Tyler. Uh, Have a great day. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. All right, and that wraps up this episode of the Lionshare Marketing Podcast. If you're not following us on Facebook, be sure to go drop us a like there, and uh, we always appreciate your reviews. Uh, Be easy on us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, along with several other podcast platforms. We've expanded our reach a little bit. You can learn all about that at lionsharepodcast.com, so be sure to connect with us there as well. And until next time, cheers. been listening to the lion share podcast brought to you by fidelitas development your marketing partner for better brand loyalty